Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Today, I am absolutely delighted to have a very special guest, basketball legend Wilbert Olindi Jr. Welcome, Wilbert. Thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here. To start, I would like to give the audience a short biography of your life, mm -hmm. drawn from the recent book about you by Dr. Christoph Ribot. The book is called Deutschland für eine Saison, Die wahre Geschichte des Wilbert Olindi Jr., published by Surkamp in 2017. In English, that's Germany for One Season, the true story of Wilbert Olindy Jr. I highly recommend the book, which provides an intimate and rich portrait of Mr. Olindy's remarkable journey from the USA to Germany in the 1970s. Wilbert Olindy was born Cecil Jerome Olindy <laughs> in a segregated hospital in New Orleans in 1955. But since he looked like his father, his relatives insisted that he was renamed Wilbert, so he became Wilbert Jr. When he was still a child, he moved with his family to California. In the 70s, he played college basketball for the UCLA Bruins under the famous coach John Wooden. Wooden's was one of the most dominant college basketball programs in history, if not the most. Mm -hmm. And Wilbert won the national championship in the U.S. in 1975 with Coach Wooden and the Bruins. In 1977, Wilbert accepted a contract to play for the German professional team in Göttingen. At this time, only one foreigner was allowed to play for each team, and Wilbert was Göttingen's designated foreigner. Wilbert planned to stay in Germany for only one year, hence the title of the book, Germany for One Season. But one season became two, then three, then four, and five, and six, and so on. <laughs> With Göttingen, he won three national championships and two tournament championships. He was voted Mr. Basketball in 1982. Also, as he reminded me several weeks ago, he won at least one senior basketball championship? Uh, two. two. Two, actually. Pardon, yeah, two Pardon actually. me, yeah. sir. Yeah, yeah. The over 40s. Mm -hmm. Eventually, in 1983, he acquired German citizenship. Then in 1986, he was diagnosed, unfortunately, with cancer. But he is, we are happy to say, a cancer survivor. Currently, he is a consultant and mentor, and he resides here in Hamburg. So... Let's start with the title of the book. Why did you decide to stay in Germany after that first season? There were several factors. So one of them, the prominent one, was we had played, but we weren't very successful in that first year. And uh, I didn't want to end my basketball career on such a sour note. So I decided to play one more year to invest a lot of time during the summer, uh, going back to L.A., getting ready. And it was going to be my final uh, season, the season after that. And I guess I said that about nine times. 
Thank you. What were some of the cultural differences that struck you as being the most strange or interesting when you first moved to Germany? Yeah, when I first came, I, I thought I was only going to stay for one year. So I, I said, uh, Wilbur, don't call anything strange. Yeah, say it's different. And it was, um, it started already in the airport. Yeah, the cultural difference. I had flown a lot in the States uh, by playing at UCLA and then to see a sex shop uh, in the airport. That was, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> that was very interesting. And as far as basketball was concerned, I went from playing in Poly Pavilion with over 12,000 uh, fans to, uh, yeah, to playing in a, a gym that was about, I don't know, about 2,000 fans we had in there. They're very enthusiastic, but it was, uh, it was, surely was a difference. In 1983, you did acquire your German citizenship. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your decision to acquire German citizenship? Yeah, I, I had played up until from 77 to 82 as a, um, as a foreigner. Each team only had one foreigner. And uh, one thing you can't forget is that it was a lot of pressure it to be that one foreigner, everyone expecting you to do everything and uh, always be at your best. And I had lived in Germany for those five years. And my daughter was born in 1981. I got married in 1980. And these were a combination of things where I thought, okay, I'm going to stay here longer. I don't know how long, but I will stay here longer. And so I said, okay, I'll, then I'll change my citizenship, play as a, as a national. It would make things easier for me as far as living in Germany. Yeah, being able to vote or certain things where I didn't have to have permission to stay. Yeah, and I remember going to the American consulate in uh, Hamburg and he, him asking me, yeah, is that really what you want to do? And I said, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm very sure of it. And I would say I've never regretted it. I've only had one situation at the uh, airport going back through Florida where someone questioned it, but otherwise uh, there's never been any problems with it. And yeah, it's, I've lived now longer as a German than, than an American. That's really interesting that yeah. you've had more years here in Germany than in the U.S. Yeah, and as a, um, I've been longer a German citizen than I've been an American citizen as well. To what extent do you consider yourself in any way an American? Do you follow American politics? Do you feel personally any emotional connection to, say, the Obama regime or the Trump regime or what happens in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. I, I do follow it uh, quite a bit. With the years, it has become less and less. I've become less and less involved. But uh, it's a part of, of what, how I grew up and it's a part of what uh, shaped me. Uh, to be who I am. So, of course, I, I do follow it. Uh, my parents don't, um, they used to live in California, but they're not living anymore. So <laughs> that sort of takes away some of the identification. You ask about the Obama situation. Yeah, I found it also very fascinating because when my, when I was growing up, my parents had grown up in Louisiana and they talked about some of the situations. And I remember talking to my mother and she said, uh, for the elections, she says the most important thing for her was to have an opportunity to vote for a black man as president. She said, I don't know if he's going to win, but that's not very relevant, as she said at that time. The more important thing was to have that possibility after growing up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s uh, in Louisiana. And then I realized yeah, how, how important uh, that step was. And then to, to follow the, the situation, eight years of Obama trying to get people to come together, 
you know, trying to get people to live together, to work together, to, yeah, to do something for the environment, all these things, and then to see what can happen within a year. You know, with, a, with an administration, it seems like to me, it's more about separation, <clears throat> dividing people up, and then uh, changing the, the situation uh, in their lives. That has never been successful. That has never been healthy for a longer period of time. Some people may profit from it, but in the long run, that, that doesn't work. Moving on from Germany to another part of your personal development, after your professional playing career, you've become a coach, consultant, and mentor. Could you talk a little bit about your philosophy of coaching? My, my philosophy is, is based on a sentence I once read. And the sentence said that uh, everything in nature grows from the inside out. And so my philosophy is to try to help people to find that inner strength, because that's going to be the basis of how well they do in the future. Uh, it's not always something popular, because some people say, no, let me change the other people, let me change the situation. I said, no, you have to change yourself first. Know what you can do well, know what you value, uh, know where your limits are, and then be able to go out in the, in the outer world and to, um, to make the situation better for yourself. It's a really fascinating idea. Could you give us some specific examples? When, when someone comes to me for coaching, they have a, a, something that's going on in their lives. And when I say, well, let's start with talking about what things are valuable to you. What are your values? What are the things that trigger you? What are the things that are most important to you? Because what I found is uh, that once you understand what's important and what the things you are you, that you value, all of your you realize all your decisions are based on that. You can decide to take a job. When people come to say what they want a job, and uh, they say, "Well, I can get a lot of money." When we talk about the things that are important to them, and they say uh, it's important to them that they can be creative in what they do, it's important for them for example, to, to be independent as far as making your decisions. So and if you look at a job that gives you a lot of money, but you can't be creative, everyone's telling you what to do, you can't be independent because you're always dependent on someone else giving you information. You may be happy with that money for a while, but I guarantee you, <laughs> latest at three years, four years down the road, you're going to realize, I'm not feeling well. Yeah, I'm not happy. I don't have the energy I had before. Yeah, it has something to do. You can't go against your values for a longer period of time. It just tears you down. Yeah, I like this idea also of growing from the inside out. And having the sense of, of personal strength internally is something that the ancient Stoic philosophers always discussed. Stop oh. worrying about things you can't control. You can worry about them forever, but you can't control them. What mm -hmm. you can control is your own attitude mm -hmm. and your own reaction your to own external forces. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I always say there's an action, and then there's a reaction. And, the, and what happens to the most of us most of the time is the reactions are automatics. These are things that have been developed over the years. And so if someone says a curse word to you, you're, you don't even think about it, you have a certain reaction, you keep, you've done it for years and years, and it's just automatic. The, the idea is to try to figure out there's a little pause between the action and the reaction, to get control of that pause, to be able to do something different in the future. And if, the more you do things differently, things change. You were talking a little bit about life coaching. There. Mm -hmm. You were also a, a basketball coach. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if some of the lessons that you give people as 
a life coach connects to basketball coaching and vice versa. And also, I wanted to ask earlier, what was it like being a player under someone like Coach Wooden? Did he coach basketball or did he coach the whole person? Uh, coach Wooden was a teacher. He, he started out as actually as a, a teacher. And that was uh, his, his philosophy. He was, he was teaching us how to do it properly as far as the way he was concerned. He would go back to the basics. When coaches nowadays ask me what was the difference between Coach Wooden and other coaches that I see or dealt with, he stressed the basics, the basics, the fundamentals. It was always about the fundamentals, getting your hands up for rebounds, making sure you have your target for a pass, making contact, and if someone does something well, to acknowledge that. And these are the things that are important for the business world. Acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. When you talk to most of the people, you say, well, how much are you acknowledged at what you do at work? Uh, uh, what is that? <laughs> yeah, they've forgotten that. It's, you do something successful and they ask you, okay, what's the next thing you're going to do for me? Instead of saying at least thank you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes thank you is enough to, to say that before you go on. We talk about fundamentals, say, in basketball, but also mm-hmm. fundamentals in the business world. And yeah. these could be task-related technical things. But are there some universal fundamentals in business? And here I'm basically mm-hmm. talking about values and ethics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that potentially people need to focus more on to find themselves. The big word is responsibility. Yeah, taking responsibility for, for what you do, for what you experience, and say, okay, that's my empowerment. When I do that, I can change things, and I don't have to wait for anyone else. I like to tell people, if it's just a small step, do it. Yeah, what you can do, do what you can do, and that will maybe lead to something else. Instead of sitting there in the corner, waiting for the other person to do something. We all know how difficult it is to change ourselves. So how do we expect to change someone else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's impossible. So do something for yourself. And if everyone does something for themselves, it's going to be for the good of all of us. You, you mentioned responsibility earlier as the key word there. Uh-huh. And I was thinking of taking initiative. But typically in a German organization, the taking of responsibility and initiative without multiple approvals from various people is difficult. So is this, would you consider your attitude, that attitude towards coaching in any way, generally speaking, American? This, the idea about the responsibility is for me, it came from Hawaii. So you could say that that it is American. What can you explain that? What do you mean? I, well, it's about nine years ago now. Mm-hmm. I heard about uh, Ho'oponopono. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that started in in Hawaii, and it's think about getting things right. Yeah, and it's something that was the old tradition was looking to see if when groups had uh, situations where they were quarreling with each other or had arguments or conflicts, they would use this system. And later, it was developed that individuals can use it for themselves, and it's based on. All these things that are happening to me, I take responsibility for it, and I try to be thankful for it as much as possible. And once I have that attitude, I have a better feeling about what's going on around me. And when I have a better feeling about what's going on around me, my brain is free to find different options, or I realize that there are different options. So many times we think there's only one way. 
Of course, if you think there's only one way, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be upset, sad maybe. And if you realize when you say, okay, I'm accepting everything that's going on around here, which isn't easy. Yeah, I like to say it's simple. It sounds simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, to do that, sometimes you, your eyes open, your ears open. You hear say, someone say something and you go, ah, I could use it. So as, as a coach, teacher, mentor yourself, been a professor for many years, mm -hmm. I, I'm always struck sometimes that there are these special students come along that reinvigorate you and remind you of what it is that you do. In fact, mm -hmm. they, they become the teachers themselves. I was wondering if you can think of any cases recently of a student really changing your worldview. It always happens. <laughs> That's also a part of this uh, thinking, mm -hmm. is to realize that uh, the people that you're meeting, they're, they're holding a mirror up to you. Yeah. So if I'm coaching someone and they're talking about a situation, it has also something to do with me. Otherwise, we wouldn't be together talking about it. So I don't sit there across the table or across the, the room and say, oh, that person has a problem. What, I, what, I'm, what can I learn from every situation? What can I learn from this conversation? What can I learn from this coaching to help myself, to develop myself, uh, to improve myself? Yeah, so what you're saying is actually learning from the student is an integral part of your yes. entire yeah. teaching yeah, yeah. and mentoring yeah, philosophy. Yeah, yeah. When I was a, a basketball coach, I would watch any type of kids playing or, or doing exercise. I didn't care how old they were, just if they were 10 years old, 12 years old, because I always would see something where I think, okay, that's not going to work for the 16, 18, but if I change it a little bit, it's going to work. So continuing on the topic of sport and basketball and, and thinking, actually, my favorite quotation about sport from philosophical history comes mm -hmm. from Plato, ah. who wrote, The person wholly devoted to sport becomes an unintelligent Philistine, with no use for reason discussion and an animal addiction to settle everything with brute force. His life is one of clumsy ignorance, unrelieved by grace or beauty. On the other hand... Ah. A person devoted only to philosophy becomes spiritless. His energy degenerates into peevishness and ill temper, and he is subject to constant irritability. So it was interesting that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans all mm -hmm. believed that we needed to balance our physical beings with our mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. beings. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit more about the importance of basketball or sport in general in mm -hmm. one's intellectual development and how mm -hmm. these two yeah. things are united? Yeah, there's for me, there's three different levels. There's the emotional, and then there's the mental, and there's the physical. And if you don't have those in alignment, you won't be able to maximize your potential. You can be good. You can be even very good. But if you want to get the most out of yourself, it's important to have that in alignment. And that's the same thing for someone who goes to work every day. But for, for an athlete, <clears throat> that's something that he has to be aware of every day, to be aware of, okay, where am I right now emotionally? Yeah, what is my mental state of mind? And what is my physical state of mind? And today, maybe because of that, I won't be able to give 100%. I can only give 80, but I will give that 80. That's one thing Coach Woodman always told. He says, I, I want you to give me everything you have. 
I'm not saying you give me every day 100%, but I want you to give me everything you have for that day. Could you talk a little bit more about the emotional side of things, Steve? How, how one can develop their emotional well-being or self-awareness mm -hmm. to become a better competitor? I only mention this because, and I should tell the audience this, I had um, Mr. Olindi at a, a talk several weeks ago, and at the end I, I forced him to play... <laughs> I forced him to play waste paper basketball with me. We crumpled up some pieces of paper and had to throw them off the stage. And, of course, I lost. <laughs> But it's very important to mention that before um, Wilbert did this, he actually calmed himself down and mm -hmm. visualized the piece of paper going into the basket. And, it, of course, when you visualize it like this, it, it happens. And the only other sport I know where this happens regularly where you have the time to, to visualize something is in golf, but mm -hmm. also taking free throws in basketball, where you mm -hmm. are suddenly, you are mm -hmm. not playing against anyone, you have control mm -hmm. of the situation. And that's why I asked this mm -hmm. question. Yeah. Um, the thing about the emotional side, some people think it starts during the game or during practice, mm -hmm. but it actually starts before. You have to, they, some people need to get their emotions up to get their adrenaline going. Other people need to get themselves down. Like when I was playing, I listened to slow jazz music yeah, to calm me down, to get to a level where I didn't want to go all the way down because I wouldn't be able to perform. But I had to make sure that the emotions that I had didn't stop me from bringing my, the, the performance I wanted to bring. And so, and then once you get to the game, like when I was shooting that basket, I had already shot four or five times that piece of paper into the basket. So when I did it for my body, it was the fifth or sixth time that we had done it. My body didn't know I actually didn't shoot before that. <laughs> so, so that helped me to calm down and to be assured that it was going in. And if I was practicing or still playing afterwards, I would have been looking at that situation. Okay, what was the, what was my emotional level? What was my mental state of mind at that time? And we practice in basketball. You practice, you shoot, you shoot, and you look for the perfect shot. In the games, there's a saying, if you make the basket, then you've, then you've met the right decision. And you don't, you don't shoot for the perfect form. Yeah, it's, it has a lot to do with emotions. Mm -hmm. I would uh, be moving for a basket, and before I even shot, it was going in. I could just feel it. And if I don't have that feeling, then the chance that it's going in is going to be lower. Mm -hmm. um, you ask the great players, Kareem, Michael Jordan, whoever they are, they knew it was going in. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> There was no question. Mm -hmm. They were surprised when it didn't And go in. <laughs> yeah, Those are the people that are really way at the top. Outside of the realm of sport, mm -hmm. speaking of visualization, when I teach public speaking, I always tell mm -hmm. my students who mm -hmm. create this anxiety beforehand about failure, yeah. they say, you're, you're doubling and tripling your anxiety by, by visualizing failure. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just visualize yourself getting up there and doing it? Maybe not giving the best speech of all time, but giving a competent speech where you start it, execute it, and mm -hmm. finish it, even mm -hmm. with some minor mistakes in there, but you do yeah. it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, if they can do that, 90% of their anxiety goes away. Uh, definitely. Like I was saying, when, when, you, when you do that, there's a chemical reaction in your body. So you start producing 
those uh, those elements in you that help you to be successful, to calm you down, to make you assured, be, to be creative. And you create that without doing something. But if even if you don't do it, and you're creating things that are stopping you from being cortisol, you know, all these things that stop you, make you stressful, then there's no way that once you do it, things are going to be different. Sometimes people say you got to fake it <laughs> before you make it. But it's it's not faking it. It's going through the procedure. It's creating what you need to be successful. And when you go up on stage, you're much better. I had a, um, a former player. Uh, she called me. She says, "I have. A, I'm going to be taking a, a, a test, you know, the practical test for my driver's license." She says, "I'm so nervous about it." And I go, "What I want you to do is every night before you go to sleep, I want you to visualize the perfect drive. And every morning before you get up from bed." I want you to visualize that you've done a perfect drive. And after a few days, she called me back. She goes, now I have another problem. And I go, what's wrong? She goes, now I feel too confident. <laughs> I'm sure she passed. As yeah, a student of yours. Of course, it's a perfect story. I wouldn't tell you otherwise. Yes. I want to change gears a little bit and talk uh -huh. about a sad subject. At a very young age and as a professional athlete, you were diagnosed mm -hmm. with cancer. Mm -hmm. So how did you cope with this? And is there any advice you would give to people about how to cope with such a mm -hmm. diagnosis? I was a shock. I was uh, 31 years old and um, still playing basketball. It was my last season. And when at the beginning, you didn't know it would be your last season. No, I had I had planned for it to be oh, my last season. Yeah, I had already. That was my plan. And uh, and then this came. And and when I think when I reflect on it, I think it was important that I did. Uh, say, okay, I'm shocked, that I am sad, that I'm uh, afraid, because that's an important thing. Don't try to push these things away. You, you got to deal with them, take them on, like taking the responsibility. At a point, if I had changed my, my attitude earlier, it would have helped me, because I still kept concentrating on what wasn't going right in my life, instead of concentrating on what the things that were going uh, right in my life. Coach Wooden, another thing from Coach Wooden, he said, uh, don't let what you can't do get in the way of what you can do. And that's the important thing. Of course, you, I've had cancer at that time, but when if I was to look around me, sort of spread out and think about, yeah, I have a daughter, I have a wife, yeah, I've, I've got to, I've, I've got a job, I've got, you know, other things in my family and that was in the States. There are some things that are good. We sort of concentrate on that black spot in the middle instead of looking around. And that's when I started expanding, looking at the other things. Okay, I'm still alive. I, I am to, let's say, like 95% of me is uh, is healthy. So don't let that 5% lead to that, that other 95% also won't be healthy. My father likes to tell a story about the donut shop in Cicero in Chicago uh -huh. where he lived that he would drive by every day. It, it said, look at the donut, not at the hole. And that was a great message yeah. to give to everyone yeah. every day as they yeah. drove to work yeah. to, to, you know, to, to don't look at the, at the fact that yeah. you know, there's, there's a hole in my uh -huh. donut. Yeah. And there was also, the, I was reading when someone said, you take a glass of water and put a teaspoon of salt in it and you taste it, of course it's going to be salty. You take a pool of water <laughs> and put a teaspoon of salt in it. You're not, going to, you're not going to feel the effects of it. So it's an important thing to expand 
to make sure you see what else is going on around you. You are not so self-aware at 31 as you are now <laughs> dealing with this. You make this sound so simple. This is, this so, is my so reflection. You did, yeah. you did learn a lot going through this process. Yeah. I mean, it is yeah. part of who you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it was, um, yeah, the, the fear of, yeah, am I going to live? How long am I going to live? Uh, the fear of, okay, what, what does this mean? How many mo more operations? Okay, I have one operation, and, and I thought, oh, okay, it's going to be okay. And then there was another operation, and then there was another operation. And then there was the chemotherapy. All these things, going through all that was always a step, uh, another opportunity to learn. But I wasn't, as I am now, where I think about those things. It was, okay, dealing with it, trying to survive. And now I'm at the point where I, I try... I'm not always successful at it. If things are going bad in my life, I try to, at that point, to feel even better. <laughs> because I know that's going to help me to get to the next step. And if things are going well in my life, okay, I still try. I, I appreciate those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know <clears throat> what I do now is going to have impact on what I did, uh, what I'm going to do in the future, what I'm going to experience in the future. And how I was in the past has led to me to where I am right now. I wanted to talk a little bit about basketball and poverty in the U.S. It is unfortunate, perhaps, that professional sport is still seen by many impoverished young black men as their only hope out of the mm -hmm. ghetto. So what do you think about the relationship between sport and poverty in African-American communities in the U.S.? When you live in poverty, you look and say, okay, how can I get out of here? Yeah, how can I live a different life? And what are the role models the people who are prominent, you see, those are the athletes, the professional athletes. Those are the um, entertainers. But very little do you see, there are a lot of successful doctors, yeah, professors. But if you don't see that, then you don't realize uh, that that is another opportunity. Um, I think in college basketball, 1% of the players who go to college basketball, play college basketball, play in the pros. 1%. So when you're going, if you get a scholarship, then think about, I could be one of those 90, uh, part of that 99%. So don't be so just looking in one direction. You got to make sure that you, okay, what are, what are the options? Uh, there's A, of course, I want to do that. But what could be B and C? Who instilled the value of education in you? I'm a mother. Okay. And you well, have two degrees, correct? Yeah, yeah. I have, a, I have a degree in uh, economics mm -hmm. from uh, UCLA and a degree in business administration from the university in, uh, in Göttingen. My mother. My mother um, went back to college when, uh, when my sister went to school and came to school. And then to get her degree, she wanted, she wanted to be a teacher. So she went back and got her degree to be a teacher. And then she got her master's in education. Then she was a teacher. And then she was a... Um, a principal, and that was a thing that always impressed me, and that was something that she always stressed yeah, at home, yeah, to, how important it was to have an education. I want to change keys again and move back to Germany. Since the refugee crisis of 2015, when Chancellor Merkel let about one million refugees into Germany, the integration of foreigners into German society has probably been the most important political <coughs> issue here as well as throughout Europe. While there are many who welcome refugees, there has been a nationalist and xenophobic backlash that we see reflected in the recent elections. Wilbert, some describe you as the poster child for the successful integration of immigrants. 
You work, you pay your taxes, you speak German fluently, and you've become a German citizen. Why can't everyone be like you? <laughs> I hope that everyone doesn't want to be me. <laughs> My son plays basketball, and people say, oh, he's going to go in your footsteps. I go, no, I hope he, he goes in his own footsteps. Mm-hmm. And when people say poster child, I go, look at the, um, the situation. When I came voluntarily uh, to Germany. Uh, I came into a situation where people, as long as I played well at the beginning, <laughs> wanted me to stay and to be a part of it. And these people who come as refugees aren't here voluntarily. Yeah, they made a decision to come here, but I'm sure most of them would have preferred to stay home. And so it's a, it's a, a lot difficult for them. But there are certain things, of course, that they can do to make it easier for themselves. But these people have suffered a lot of uh, traumas. And so they've, they actually need some time, first of all, to deal with that before they can start thinking about how can I be integrated into the society why can't we be open? <laughs> you know, why, why can't we just be open to learn from others to say, hey, there's a lot to be spread around here. Yeah. And we can, uh, we can profit from other people being here. They can learn from us. We can learn from them. That's the melting pot of, of the United States. That's what made the United States so successful. It wasn't just one type of person, one type of culture. It was the mix of these uh, cultures, and this is an opportunity now. Okay, if you're unemployed, you probably don't think that way. So you do advise patience. Patience. That is probably the most difficult word in the uh, in, in the in any language. Um, I don't know what's uh, what's coming up yet, but um, you know we we all love to talk about our comfort zones. And we want to stay in there because we know what's going on. We can maybe, uh, there's some un- uncertainties, but there's a lot more certainty outside of our comfort zone. And Dr. King would always say, take that first step in utter faith. We don't have all of the answers. Um, I'm happy you mentioned Dr. King because I will <laughs> ask you about that shortly. Yeah. But I do want to stick with Germany and German history. Uh-huh. And I, I want to talk about German cultural memory and the ways in which the German people have dealt with the Nazi era which strikes me as being profoundly different from the ways in which America as a whole has dealt with its slave history. Germans constantly confront and reflect on the Nazi past, both in public and in private life, Mm -hmm. in a variety of different ways. In addition to monuments to the victims of Nazi atrocities, as well as Remembrance Days, German law forbids Holocaust denial and Mm -hmm. has harsh penalties for public displays of Nazi symbols and gestures. In the South and the U.S., there are still monuments to Confederate generals, which many interpret as symbols of continuing racism in the U.S. So what do you think about the way Germans deal with the Nazi era, and what do you think Americans can learn from that? What they're doing is they say, it's there. Let's not run away from it. Let's look at it and see what it means for us, what it means for the way I live, for the way I am. And what can I do to prevent it in the future? Yeah, they're not hiding from it in, the, in that sense. Having those monuments, it's almost like, okay, slavery isn't there, but wow, wasn't that great back then? Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's not letting go of that uh, situation. It's almost like holding on to it. And um, I think that's what the, the Ameri- Americans can learn from it, being open about it. Hey, slavery was a long time. 
Yeah, and uh, there's certain things that still need to be dealt with as far as the separation of people uh, that began in that time, and to be open about what what can be done and what can we learn from that, and how can we go forward where everyone feels good about it. Not just some people feel good about it, but everyone has an opportunity to feel good about going forward. Sticking with the subject of African American history, mm-hmm. last week was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. What are your thoughts about King and his legacy? I know you've already quoted him once, so mm-hmm. he's probably a part of your intellectual life. Yes, yes, yes. And um, even a couple of weeks ago, even before the, this 50th anniversary, I was uh, thinking about Dr. King because I, I remembered he had a speech before the evening before he was assassinated. He wasn't supposed to be going to a meeting, uh, to, a, to a church, and he decided the last minute to go. And, and he talked about uh, he, had, he had been to the mountaintop. Yeah, he had seen uh, what was coming. He says, I might not be a part of it, but uh, please believe me that um, that is there. Yeah, something is, is coming. And he says he fears no, no man. Yeah, no evil. He doesn't fear anything anymore because of that feeling. And I, and I always think about, wow, that's something I want to attain. <laughs> yeah, to be in that situation where you're, you're, you're so confident, you're so at ease, you're so serene, where, um, all that comes is a blessing. Yeah, everything that comes is a blessing. And that's the way I'm going to approach it. I've always been fascinated. People talk about, I have a dream speech. <laughs> I, I am more fascinated about what he said uh, on that evening, and then even more so, of course, because he was assassinated the next day. It's almost like he found the zone for life, as yeah. one might find the zone in a sporting game, and just be yeah. at one with... At, at one with all that was. At one with all that is, and at one with all that will be. And that's... Uh, I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> if you can teach us all, please. That's, that's, that's definitely where I'm trying to go. Two years ago, I, we had a reunion from the 1975 UCLA basketball team. And I had breakfast with one of my former players. And he says, me, do you have any dreams or, or visions for the future? I, says, I said, uh, I have one. Yeah, I, I want to have that inner peace, yeah, that, that inner freedom. Yeah, I think Dr. King reached that. Yeah, and there's other people who reach that. And I just think it's fascinating to be in that situation. This is a good way to transition to my last question, which mm-hmm. I ask all my guests. What issue should we be discussing that we are not discussing? In other words, what is one critical issue in the world that everyone should think about more? Um, why do we think we are different in the, in the, in the core that we're different from everyone else. As I think in the core, we're all the same. Yeah. Well, when there's that, that talking about going from the inside out, there's something there that we all have. The changes, the differences are things that we learned and, and things that we've been taught and things that we have accepted to be the truths. But we, if we were to get back to realizing that here in the heart, we're basically the same. Martin Luther King mm-hmm. said the arc of history bends towards justice, but yeah. there will be problems along the way. It seems like, indeed now, that, that idea that, it's, that there's some sort of great unity and similarity amongst people is being lost. How do we reach people? 
who think that, no, Wilbur, you're black, you're different? I let them think that way. But I don't, that means you know, I have to think that way. So I keep talking about the way I think. And other people talk about the way they think. And at some point, more people will start getting into the conversation. And patience, it comes to patience again. It's going to take a long, long time to reach that more of a great mass that start to think that way and to believe in that. Then the children, that's what they will grow up with. And that's where you, that's where you have your biggest chance, yeah, with children, because like I said, they aren't born that way. And we're teaching them uh, to be that way. So if you get to, to the children and give them an opportunity to see the world in a different way, then the world has a chance to change. Thank you again, Wilberto Lindy. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being here. If you would like to read more about Mr. Olindy's fascinating journey, check out Christoph Ribat's Deutschland für eine Saison, die wahre Geschichte des Wilbert Olindy Jr., published by Zurkamp in 2017. If you enjoy The Transatlanticist, please support the show by subscribing for free with your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de, and thanks for listening. Oh,